Welcome to The Art of Leadership, the podcast where we talk to diverse and prominent leaders about how the humanities informs their leadership. I'm your host, Norman Sandridge, and our guest today is Mika Oyang, the vice president in the National Security Program for an organization called The Third Way, which bills itself as a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas. The Third Way advocates what it identifies as three particularly American values, namely opportunity, security, and freedom. Before coming to the Third Way, Mika was the chief of staff to Representative Representative Anna Eshoo, and she was the defense policy advisor to Senator Ted Kennedy. Mika began her career as a legislative assistant in the office of uh, Representative Pat Schroeder, where she handled the Congresswoman's armed services and foreign policy work. Originally from Monterey, California, Mika earned her JD at the University of California and her undergraduate degree from Wellesley College. She appears often on MSNBC and has written for numerous media outlets, including The Washington Post, Roll Call, and Forbes. Today, we're going to talk to Mika about how she came to identify as a leader, particularly in her work in the third way. Then we will talk in more detail about how she understands the mission of her organization. Finally, we're going to get into the very big picture of things and ask Mika to talk about how she would like to see the world evolve going forward. Welcome, Mika, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, uh, let's let's jump right in with uh, the work that you do with uh, the third way. If you could just kind of give us a summary of what that looks like, and then I kind of want to circle back and, and do the archaeology and excavate how uh, you came to see yourself as a as a leader in this organization. So, you know, starting with what I do at Third Way, I run the National Security Program there, and I have been running it with an emphasis on. Um, understanding how the legislature operates in its national security role. We focus on the politics of national security because legislatures, much more so than the executive branch, have to think about re-election and have to think about what resonates with the people. It's Mm -hmm. the most democratic of the branches of our government, and so they should be the most responsive to the people, which means they have to take politics into account in their national security policy, much more so than a president might if they were only serving one term or a second-term president would who doesn't have to run for re-election. So, and the politics of national security are very much informed by how the public understands what it means to be a leader and how they define um, what security is. And a lot of times what might be the best outcome in national security is not the most popular outcome mm-hmm. in national security. And so helping members of Congress, um, people who might be seeking elective office, think about how to talk about national security issues in the context of what resonates with the people is a lot of the work that we do. And um, we also think about ways in which the legislature can help um, under its constitutional responsibilities address national security in some ways at overseeing the executive branch, sometimes as a check on the president, um, sometimes as um, an instigator of national security policies. Mm. So it just depends on the issue. Nice, nice. And within that uh, framework, what are the the leaderly things that that you do? Like, what what are your responsibilities? What are your, what's your authority? Uh, yeah, like so I, I lead a team of four people mm-hmm. internally who help me uh, write and think about a variety of national security issues. We're going to do a lot of work on cybersecurity, which we see as the next big or the modern threat 
to our securities and so much work happens in a digital space. So much threat is happening in a digital space. Um, but in terms of external facing leadership, one of the things that the organization Third Way does in representing the center left is that within the Democratic Party, it's a big tent party and there are a lot of different points of view. Um, we work a lot with people who are appealing to moderates and swing voters. And sometimes those people have a very different perception of national security mm. than what a liberal base might find is important based on factors of geography or demographics or just the culture of the community. Um, and so one of our real focuses as an organization is to try and understand those voters and what resonates with them. So when we're articulating security policies with that in mind, there are not a lot of other voices who take that perspective, who mm. are helping people navigate those dynamics of trying to win purple states, of trying to convince the center of the electorate um, what is the right thing to do or what makes sense, especially in these particularly polarized times. Mm -hmm. So in terms of being a leader, I don't know if you consider it adding to the debate or leading the debate, um, but we certainly have a voice out there that people look to us to say, okay, what is the argument that they're making out mm -hmm. there? And does that make sense to me? Is that something that I can follow? Mm -hmm. um, and there, there is a sort of a feedback loop in that kind of leadership. So, so you mentioned cybersecurity. C can you think of a particular example of a, of, a of a position or a policy within cybersecurity that uh, would require you to, to frame it in such a way that it has kind of broad appeal, that it kind of, you know, resonates with many people? or Yeah, so this is a little preview of the work that we're going to be doing going forward, but one of the challenges that we really see in cybersecurity is that there's a lot of focus on the defensive technology pieces of cybersecurity. People think a lot about how do I make stronger passwords or stronger encryption? How do I make sure that there are fewer vulnerabilities in my software? How do I set standards? How do I improve the supply chain? It's about the programs and the hardware. Um, but one of the things that we're trying to articulate in cybersecurity going forward is a focus on the human attacker. And how do you think about this as the human being, uh, how do you get to the human being on the other side of their computer, the actual fingers on the keyboard? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a change in um, orientation for the cybersecurity debate that we're hoping to make a shift there. All the other things are very important. Certainly manufacturers and programmers should focus on making their, mm -hmm. um, their products secure. But when it comes to the U.S. government and its role in providing security globally and in a particular domain, only the government can actually prosecute someone for committing the crime of stealing from someone over the digital space or interfering with their computer systems or denying them service or blackmailing them or whatever else. That's not something that the private sector can do. And I think mm -hmm. that there is a real sense that the U.S. government has not stepped up to its responsibility to be the leader in this domain. And this goes back to the concept of hegemony. Mm. Um, you know, when you think about the British Empire in the 1800s, part of the reason that the British Empire was a hegemony in the space was that they provided security for the space on behalf of everyone, and then they set the rules of access for the space. Mm -hmm. And if someone wants to be the global leader in the space, they actually have to provide security and set rules for the benefit of everyone. They're setting the rules of the road. 
the internet is fundamentally an American space invented in the U.S. The rest of the world uses that, but the U.S. needs to think about not just how does it set the rules, which it's done through its technological prowess, but what is its responsibility to address the digital threats the, to the domain from individuals who are trying to disrupt financial transactions, communications mm-hmm. transactions, the, sanct- the security of the products itself, undermining trust in the domain, um, much in the same way the British Navy went after pirates mm-hmm. who were trying to disrupt trade at that Good time. Analogy. yeah. Nice. So, so I, I guess when, you, when you're trying to communicate the message that you just uh, laid out there, you, you must meet with a lot of resistance from people who worry that the government, you know, they don't want the government too much, in, or they think it's going to be too involved in their personal affairs, or they want uh, the government to be smaller anyway. They want an America first, you know, an isolationist kind of approach. Like, mm-hmm. do, do you see opportunities for overcoming those biases? I, and, and getting back to your your role as a leader, it, it mm-hmm. seems like you must need a lot of emotional intelligence to get inside people's heads and understand the the foundation of this bias and kind of almost like uh, you know inoculate people against it or t- take it you know suck the the poison out as it were if that's how you see it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we're just starting the work on cyber, so engaging with people about it will be a challenge. I do think that. In the digital domain, there's a lot of sense that the government shouldn't be involved that much, that this is a private sector-led, mm-hmm. right, multi-stakeholder enterprise, that no government should be involved in that. Um, but individuals cannot actually deal with the bad actors. And there are bad actors out there, and then you know, they're either going, you're either going to have to just tolerate them you're going to have to tolerate the Internet Research mm-hmm. Agency and Fancy Bear, or you're going to have to figure out how to do something about it. And it's not just the state-sponsored bad actors, but there are a whole series of criminal actors out there. And mm-hmm. so how do we deal with that? But this sort of emotional intelligence and understanding how you talk to people about national security threats comes into play most clearly not in this area, but actually in the area of terrorism, uh, okay. which we spent a lot of time dealing with. Um, because terrorism since 9-11 has really invoked a lot of visceral fears that people have about other. And one of the things that we've done is taken a look at social psychology research to understand what's going on when people are afraid. And one of the things that we see when people are afraid is they often, when they're afraid, look for the overbroad solution in national security. Mm. So, for example, after 9-11, we saw a, a lot of politicians moving to an overbroad solution, um, more government control with things like the Patriot Act um, and some of the activities that the U.S. government took into account. They were so afraid of the potential of the consequences of an error, right, mm-hmm. of not finding the bad guy, that they were willing to accept tremendous incursions into their liberty to be able to do that. And we saw it again in 2014 after the attacks in Paris, San Bernardino, and Orlando, where, and that's where Trump first started articulating this mm-hmm. idea of banning Muslims from entering the country. People were so afraid at that time. They wanted the overbroad solution. And so one of the things that we've tried to understand is how do you talk to people mm-hmm. when they have that sense of fear and panic? And we've looked at data and we've seen that The period after a large-scale terrorist attack, people are afraid for, at a minimum, we think, 12 to 14 weeks, where they're looking for that kind of solution. And Mm -hmm. then you have to ask yourself, all right, well, how do I get people to listen to an effective solution? Because fighting terrorism is ultimately about 
targeting a small group of bad actors who are hiding among a large group of the citizenry. Mm-hmm. And so overbroad solutions are actually going to be very problematic because you're picking up a lot of innocent people Mm -hmm. in there. But I think there are a lot of people who are worried that the guilty who are hiding have the possibility to do a lot of damage. Um, But, you know, it's really true what Franklin Roosevelt said, that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, because fear itself has very warping effects on Mm -hmm. the psyche of the general populace and getting them to be more afraid of people who don't look like them or Mm -hmm. think they don't belong um, and riling up that kind of anger against those people. And you've seen now a president who's very effective at stoking those fears and trying to define very narrowly Mm -hmm. what is the American polity and then dehumanize and um, disempower people who Mm -hmm. don't fit his definition of what that looks like. Unfortunately, that's not who we are as Americans. And there are a lot of people here, myself included, who don't look like what his image looks like of what it means Mm -hmm. to be an American. Um, And that's actually been the way this country has run since the beginning. America's very different in its leadership culture that way. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is all so fascinating. I I want to pursue, I I think, two two parallel um, lines uh, from this. First, you, you talk about uh, fear and, and the role that uh, fear plays. I wonder if you could speak to perhaps the the role that art, literature, film, these kinds of things. Can, can you identify some things that you feel like make us uh, a less fearful people? Can, even if you can think think of specific things. And then the second thing I want to ask is kind of how uh, you yourself evolved into this role and sort of came to see yourself as a leader. So maybe maybe yeah. go with the. So the role of art in leadership I think is actually really important and they were talking the other day I can't remember if it was NPR or someone else um, about this administration and it's the first time we have seen a White House that does not embrace and promote the arts and when you look at the kinds of regimes that don't promote the arts that try and control them or destroy Mm -hmm. them they tend to be autocratic regimes you know Tyrannous regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw the destruction of art with the Taliban in Afghanistan before 2001. You saw it in the rise of ISIS, where they were destroying museums and libraries of ancient mm-hmm. Mesopotamia and trying to destroy those sites. You see it in the art of North Korea and the way they venerate their leader, and there is not the space yeah. for individualized expression. Um, and you see it in the president's own calls for that style of art for himself. Right? Yeah. There's art requires a certain amount of freedom of expression and tolerance of difference for people to be able to really make interesting art to challenge yeah. the status quo. And men, much of art is a reaction to its political times. Um, so when you see regimes starting to crack down on artists to withdraw its support from the arts, as you've seen the Republicans do since 94 um, with the NEA, um, you start to see a reduction in tolerance for dissent and diversity of opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really troubling in a country that was founded on the right to dissent and founded on democracy and views that as healthy for our political culture. Right. Um, you have to be willing to recognize that as long as that speech or that art is not trending into violence, that that you can just let it be. And you can yeah. you know appreciate it, you can critique it, you can respond to it, but that's very different than trying to silence it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I would extend this even to uh, the level of history. Uh, one, one of the things that has really struck me about uh, th- when I think about Trump lately is is he seems ahistorical. In other words, like most politicians, when they they come to power, they they align themselves with prior presidents, and, and and even if it's a little bit of a fudge, they will say, you know, well, I'm doing this in the tradition of Franklin Roosevelt or John Kennedy or Abraham Lincoln or whatever, or, you know, a Republican would say, you know, this is a very Reagan thing to do or something. Uh, but but with Trump, it's, it's as if the story begins with him. There, there's this sense that nothing in America has ever gone right. You know, we have all these bad laws. We have all these bad politicians. It was just a, a mess. And then now it's like, a, the you know, the sunrise in America, like a, a new day. If, if you just if, if you took history from the way Trump talks, he makes no reference to prior uh, prior history, seemingly, to yeah. me, other than its, its badness. I don't know if that's his lack of interest in history. And he's very clearly not yeah. someone who is intellectually curious about that and looking for historical analogy and ways that past presidents have done th- things. You know, every president in my lifetime has come in and talked about the biographies of past presidents right. and met with presidential historians to understand the people right. who've had the job before them. Um, this president hasn't really been interested in that. And the only historical reference he's made to his predecessors is actually to put up the portrait of Andrew Jackson in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson, widely considered the worst president in the United States till that this point. Um, and Jackson, you know, removed the Cherokee along the trail of tears to Oklahoma to make room for more slavery in Georgia. Um, that's not a great record, right? A forced march genocide. Um, but at the time that Jackson was elected, there was a real sense that he was a common man, that he was restoring right, the sense of the people to the White House. There were a lot of people in Washington mm-hmm. at that time who were sort of horrified at the coarseness of his followers. Um, so it's not totally ahistoric, but Trump doesn't really make reference right. to that, right, right. Um, which, you know, it also speaks to his egotism. And when you look at other autocrats, particularly at right, the North Koreans, who Trump seems quite fond of, you know, they even started numbering their years from the beginning of the regime. And so yeah. it'll be interesting to see if Trump tries to change the date system, right? right? How much does he believe that he is, in fact, the center of the new day? Right. Um, but that kind of, right, Hitler did the same thing. That kind of sort of trying to erase of history and starting it over with oneself is actually a trait of a quite dangerous dictator. Right, right, right. So m- moving from dictators to you. Uh, <laughs> no similarities No there. similarities. Uh, offer not a guarantee. Um, you, you, in your current leader, well, uh, let, me, let me ask it this way. Um, do you use the word leader to think about yourself? Do, do, you, do, you, do you wake up in the morning and say, I'm a leader? Do you go to bed and say, I'm a leader? What does a leader need to do in this situation? Is that a, is that a tool you use to think with um, you know, identify I, with? I didn't used to. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my career, I was a staffer. So in that sense, someone else is your leader and you're responsible for making sure that they mm-hmm. look good and your name doesn't even go on things. And right, you're sort of seen but not heard except mm-hmm. for through your memos. Um, and in this job, I have a much more public-facing position. Um, and I'm at the time that I took the job, I was one of the few women who actually led a national security program. It's actually very unusual for a woman to be in this field. It's become much more common now, mm-hmm. and for that, I am really gratified. Um, but I didn't really think of myself as a leader. 
until I was participating in this forum out at Aspen, it's a small leadership group where we actually read a lot of the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about that later. Uh, and one of we were talking about women's leadership roles and Simone de Beauvoir. And um, one of the other women in the group turned to me and said, but what is your role as a leader for the rest of us? I was, I think, probably the oldest woman in the group at the time. Um, And all of a sudden I felt like, oh, wait, I'm not just out here giving my opinion and sort of being a pundit, but that because there are so few women, and in my case, so few minorities who do this, there are a lot of people who will look to me to say, okay, there's someone senior in my field, and what are they doing, and do I admire them or do I not admire them? Is that a career that I want or Mm -hmm. not? And you get to a certain level of prominence, and your success or failure reflects on the rest of the group. And I didn't ever think about that before. Mm. Um, So, I mean, it almost sounded like there, there was an anointing that took place, like it was a public act that this woman kind of... I mean, it wasn't public so much as like a private nudging, uh-huh. but it, okay. you know... Um, or it was, a, let's say, a social act. Like yes. S- s- someone, uh, almost the way a mentor might spot uh, talent or spot an identity or a role that you had not tried on uh, yeah. yet or thought about. And I'd been a leader even before that. You know, I was a chief of staff on the Hill. There were very few women chiefs of staff on the Hill, and mm-hmm. I was the sort of senior staffer in that office, and I had a number of other Asians ask me, like, what does it mean to be for you to be the leader? How do you think of yourself in a leadership role? Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of figuring it out then, and I don't know that that was my best go-around at being a leader. It's sort of first time is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing it, you have to think about, okay, what is my responsibility to the people who report to me or I'm responsible for, depending on what the, how the role is defined, but also, mm-hmm. like, how do other people outside my specific organization look to me as somebody who is in this space, um, who's been there before? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't have many women leaders to look up to. And actually, um, it's funny, you know, in national security, there are just not many Asian women uh, generally. And I, this was maybe I was still on the intelligence committee so this was probably 11, 12 years ago now Um, I was having lunch with a colleague of mine who was also an Asian woman who was very senior at the State Department at the time we were having a long conversation about North Korea of all Mm -hmm. things Um, and talking about like how should the US approach it from a policy perspective and sort of having a very deep very wonky conversation about North Korea and at the next table it was another Asian woman, slightly older, who leaned over, and it was Maisie Hirono, who's now the senator from Hawaii, but at that time had just been elected to the House of Representatives. And she said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to tell you how proud it makes me that the two of you are having this conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That she recognized that there are very few Asian women mm-hmm. who would have a conversation like that at that level that wasn't specifically because we were Asian. It's not like we worked on it because, I mean, I'm not even Korean, right? Mm -hmm. It was just by position we happened to have that and we could Mm -hmm. have that conversation. And what a rarity it was. And it was just, it was a really nice moment to feel like among Asian women, there's a sense of like the national security conversation matters to leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and so there are these moments along the way where you realize like you're not just engaging with the substance yeah. you're also in this position where where people look to you and since I've started doing television in the past year it's been even weirder for me um, because I just think I'm there to like give short snappy commentary because <laughs> it's television um, but I've had a number of men reach out to me on Twitter mostly Asian men to say how much it means to them for their daughters mm. that I'm actually on television. Mm-hmm. And I remember what it was like as a kid to see Connie Chung, you know, anchoring the evening news and how much it meant to see a voice of authority in a face yeah. that looks like mine. Yeah. Um, and in both newscasting and in national security, there's sort of an additional gravitas that's imposed on the person who's doing the speaking because of the subject matter. Right. And the it's, fear that you mentioned, you know, you're, you're, you're yeah. managing people's fears. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And we also have very narrowly socially constructed ideas of what that is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And so it's right. actually, I think, more difficult for women to step into those fields and succeed at them because of the ways we have historically, through literature and through history, defined what a leader looks like. Um, And and that's been something that I've actually struggled with my whole career, the assumption that I didn't fit someone's mental map Mm -hmm. of what someone in national security should look like. And so, you know, you go into a meeting with your briefers and bring them into the conference room and they ask you to go get a cup of coffee because they think you're the receptionist and then you sit down and say we can start the briefing now and now it's off on a really awkward note because they've put you in the wrong mental box right right it's tough for people to recover from right yeah. <laughs> after doing yeah. something like that oh yeah it's got it's got to be incredibly embarrassing um so i'm curious you you mentioned uh connie chung uh in in your past were, were there works of literature that you read or parts of maybe your education at Wellesley, obviously with a big emphasis on women's leadership there that, yeah. that sort of, again, got, got you to see yourself in a different way or uh, people that you related to, as I say, maybe in film or art? Yeah. So I would say, you know, as a kid, I was a big science fiction and comic book buff. Uh Um, And I think that that actually, in a lot of ways, helped me in terms of thinking of myself as a leader. Because in traditional classical literature, it's actually very hard to find role models of strong female leaders. But throughout science fiction, throughout sort of a lot of the fantasy genres, and in particular, Marvel Comics has Mm -hmm. been particularly good at this... um, demonstrating strong women uh, has been something that I've just grown up with. And mm-hmm. frankly, I think in the Marvel universe, a lot of the women have much stronger powers than the men anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, But, um, you know, Storm can manipulate the weather and, right. like, Cyclops shoots beams out of his eyes. <laughs> I'd rather be able to manipulate the yeah. weather. Um, yeah. But, you know, so there are sort of images there of what it means to be a leader that I think mm-hmm. are very helpful. And so I really appreciate how much, say, Black Panther means in that context. Um, because it's very hard to find in the classical canon mm-hmm. uh, images of women yeah. portrayed as anything other than um, the sidekick, the mother, the love interest, um, the betrayer. Um, and so I think that's really hard. In particular, I think I... When I went to Wellesley, I chose it not because it was a single-sex college, but but in spite of it. Mm. Um, I, I thought I'd get the best education there of the schools that I got into. Um, and having typical Asian parents, there was pressure to go to the best school that I could. Um, but I, I really appreciate 
how much a single sex education helps to reframe a woman's idea of what a leader should be like. Because in every single club, in every single organization, the leader's a woman. Mm-hmm. That's all that's there. Right? It's a little bit more complicated now because there are a lot of trans students, so it's a little bit more, right, gender's a little bit more fluid now than when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this sense that it is a place that supports women in leadership and gives them a practice ground for that. How do you stand up in front of your peers and lead them? How do you build support for um, for something? How do you uh, be credible? How do you lead a meeting? Um, mm. Because someone has to lead every single meeting, and it's often a woman. Um, it's interesting, you know, Hillary Clinton spoke at commencement after my first year, and there was a tremendous debate on campus about whether or not she should actually be there, because at the time she was just the wife of a presidential candidate. And there were a number of people who felt like she was not going to um, be there as a role model for women as a leader. Oh, wow. And I think people recognized her work later and the things that she had done. She was a very powerful partner in a law firm. Um, and now I think they would feel very differently about it. But she was very impressive then. Um, and then the year that I graduated, my commencement speaker was Madeleine Albright. And so, right, of the <laughs> women secretaries of state, two of them went to Wellesley. And it's very powerful to me as a woman in national security to say that women from my college have been standing on the global stage, speaking for the United States, leading large agencies um, for a long time. And that's right. It, it, Wellesley does a very good job of, of holding up role models across a wide variety of fields as a way of saying, this is not something that is closed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think for people on campus, they took it particularly hard, the 2016 election, mm-hmm. And in fact, my younger sister was on campus that day and um, to watch what was supposed to be a, a victory party. And she was sending me text messages as the night rolled on and the returns came back. And I think for a lot of people, it was a such a hard loss because the idea that a woman would not be able to ascend to that highest level of leadership in our country, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whatever flaws people may think Hillary Clinton had, the idea that that was a door that was slammed shut on the first try of someone, when for African Americans on the first try at national, right, mm-hmm. one of the major parties um, was successful, I think people thought it was going to be successful. I think many people, I think including the current president, thought that Hillary would win. Um, it was... It was not just about support for a candidate, but a feeling like, will women ever be able to be in that role of the leader of the free world? Um, And I think about how inspiring it is, the photograph of President Obama leaning over to have the young African-American boy feel his hair and realize it is like him. The idea that someone can ascend to the highest levels of leadership who is like you and whatever way you define yourself, is incredibly powerful. And if you're a white man, that's never been a question in this country. It's always been someone like you. So it, the question is not whether or not you as an individual can do it, but do you want to? Do you have the skill? But like, it's not closed on any kind of right. demographic right. factor. That story's been told. That story's been told, right, 45 times. Right. Um, so well, let me, um, we're kind of touching on a theme, I think, throughout this conversation. 
of uh, fear. Oh, like you, you mentioned, you know, what um, fear people have in national security, how good the current president is seemingly at stoking the fears. And, uh, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder just as, as a people, or let's say as an American people, is, is there something about a man's face, uh, particularly a, a lantern-jawed, strong face, that just sort of instinctively or culturally makes people less afraid? And, and by the way, it's the same face that also stokes the fear. So it's, it's a perfect dance that we've kind of established. Uh, and, and you mentioned three um, women secretaries of state, uh, we've had zero women secretaries of defense. That's right. Right. So in in situa- it, it's the, the, there seems to be this hurdle we're kind of facing in in fearful times that we are okay to put our trust in a woman. Yeah, I think that that's a challenge on insecurity. And when you think about all the ways in which we have described warriors and leaders. Throughout history, we talk about standing tall. We talk about mm-hmm. people who are um, bright or glowing. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about people who are strong and broad-shouldered. Fearless. Fearless. We talk about the—it's the, not even the fearless piece, because I think certainly women can be fearless. I think people would have described Thatcher that way, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what you think about her politics. Um, but she was very deliberate about how she constructed the image of herself as a leader. Um, But a lot of the definitional terms in which we define leadership, tough, strong, um, tall, they are gendered terms that make Mm -hmm. it much more difficult for a woman. And you see that actually even in in presidential elections, often the taller person wins. I think that's why... Trump may have been fudging on his his height. But, um, you know, I think that that's a real challenge Mm -hmm. for women to think about. I mean, look, it's it's of such importance to people as leaders to be defined that way that Hitler, who was short and dark, tried to redefine himself that way in his own explanations of himself, (laughs) right? Instead of talking about, like, being an Aryan and tall and fair, Mm -hmm. which neither of which he was, but he... You know, that image that he was trying to construct was so strong that he projected himself into it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's actually a really hard thing and one of the challenges that we haven't quite figured out as a woman leader. Um, But one of the things that I think has also been a real detriment to women stepping into those highest leadership roles is the inability of women to serve in combat in the armed forces Mm -hmm. in this country. Um, And... When you go back and you look at the guardians, you look at ancient literature, like the idea that you are willing to put your life on the line for the nation is very mm-hmm. important and an important signifier for leadership. And it's only been fairly recently that women have been able to do that. So I started my career working for Pat Schroeder, who fought very hard to get women to be able to serve in combat roles. And actually rolled back the restriction on women on combat ships and the women in co- mm-hmm. restrictions on women in combat aviation. The restrictions on women in ground combat didn't fall until much later. But what you're seeing now in a generation of women who have been running for Congress since the Iraq War and to this day are women who are battle-tested, which is very unusual. Mm. Right? Tammy Duckworth, the senator from Illinois, gave her legs for her country. And that is not something that you have seen before. And you've seen Mm -hmm. a lot of the women who are running this cycle 
talk about their experiences in combat. There is something that is so important about the ability to serve the nation and serve the nation and risk one's life for it that it's why people fight so hard to exclude people from mm. that community, right? Yeah. That the fight against the integration of the military during World War II until Roosevelt integrated, right, and then we got through the Tuskegee Airmen and others, um, a lot of those people who served in the military in World War II came home and led the civil rights movement because they recognized that if they were enough a part of the society that they could give their lives for it, that they deserved equal treatment within right. it. And it's why women fought for it in the 90s, and it's why people fought to ha who were um, gay and lesbian fought for the right to serve openly even after that, because it's hard to not accept people when they are willing to serve, which is why one of the most powerful moments in the 2016 election was when Kizir Khan stood up at the Democratic National Convention and talked about his son who'd given his life. And when Trump attacked that sacrifice and tried to define as not American mm -hmm. that family because he didn't, they didn't meet his visual definition of what it meant to be American, the backlash was very swift from all parts of the, mm -hmm. the um, from all parts of the political system because there is a sense in this country if you are willing to serve and you are willing mm -hmm. to give your life for the country yeah. that you are a citizen. It was more of a, like a kind of a back brush than a backlash, wouldn't you say? Because he still got elected. He did still get elected, yeah. but it was one of those moments where people thought about abandoning him. But yeah. I do think that one of the things about the Trump election that shows is that the hold on people's psyche of the idea of the tall strong man as mm -hmm. leader is very strong and very ingrained in the yeah. system. It's the idea of a woman is, is not something that people are used to seeing. And unlike African-American men who have played the role of the president or played the role of general in media, um, you have not had a similar attempt to portray women mm -hmm. leaders. And, you know, there's the TV show Madam Secretary, but that's reflecting historical norms. The only times that I think you really have seen that is actually um, in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, oh, where yeah. the president is a woman. And yeah. she doesn't actually ascend Rosalind. to the president. Right. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And But yeah. she is one of the few portrayals you see of a woman who is undoubtedly in command and in command of the military and mm -hmm. the things that she has to wrestle with. Um and capable of being fearless and dominant and even right. doing cruel things, uh, crueler right. than Odama, uh, Adama would right. want. Like, yeah. Right, and there, right, that's, there shouldn't be... Some of the de decisions that are made in leadership are not particularly mm -hmm. gendered. Women are not automatically softer. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask the Brits about Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. they would say that she is not automatically softer. Um, and they're not automatically more emotional. Um, look at Queen Elizabeth for that. Um, mm -hmm. but, but there is something about the idea of a woman being elected. And it's interesting that we've never had, in, at least in this country, a woman elected, but you do see women leaders in other systems where it's parliamentary, mm -hmm. where the party selects 
right. um, the leadership and people pick a party. Yeah. And it's a little bit easier for women, I think, to convince elites that they should be the leader than to convince the population at large. Oh, interesting. So I'm going to have to fight the impulse to make the rest of this conversation about Battlestar Galactica. I, I should have, when you said sci-fi, I should have <laughs> thought of it uh, even back then, because I actually think that's like the greatest television show of all time. I mean, especially when it comes to like these these questions that you're describing here and, and storytelling. But I'm going to rein that in <laughs> and maybe uh, sa- save it for another time. I, we, uh, another Another kind of uh, text and subtext of this conversation has been about uh, the level of deep division uh, in this country now. I mean, it, everything feels politicized. Everything feels polarized uh, from clothes to food to art versus not not art. Uh, every, every issue. Uh, I, I love that your organization is called The Third Way because it, it implies that you're you kind of want to rise above division, divisiveness, and uh, and you know may, maybe bring people together. Uh, the, the the three value. I, I, I want to ask you to talk first about the three values that your organization champions, and then maybe can you identify um, some techniques of persuasion or rhetoric that you see down the road that might help us uh, reach some common ground. So your, your organization says it's uh, all about opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, freedom, and um, uh, security, of course. And I, w- one of my earliest political memories is watching the presidential debates in 1992, which I'm, I'm ashamed to say I was a huge Ross Perot fan. I was only 17 years old at the time, so I hope I can be excused uh, <laughs> for that. But I, I remember uh, in, in this debate, following the debates very closely, and uh, one of the first questions the candidates were asked uh, was kind of, what is the purpose of government? And uh, Bill Clinton, I mean, I, I still remember this. I was 17 years old. He had, he had this very uh, eloquent and forceful uh, statement about opportunity. And he, he thought that the purpose of government was to, to create opportunities for all of its citizens. And even if, if, though at the time I was kind of instinctively against Bill Clinton because I just loved Ross Perot, <laughs> uh, that, that, that message really resonated with me. And I wonder if you can speak to kind of, well, what, what do you mean by opportunity? Does it, does it derive from uh, a Clintonian vision? Or maybe he was getting that from somewhere else. I, I don't really know. But yeah, let's start th- with opportunity. I like. think that the organization certainly was inspired by that. I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit tough now because I think the 90s were a particular time. And one of the challenges as an organization that we see is that a lot of the debates get really stale and we keep making reference to history. And mm-hmm. I, it's sort of like... Um, you know, one of my co- former colleagues used to say, everybody's looking backwards. Um, the Republicans want to live in the 1950s and Democrats just want to work there. Um, but, you know, as a nation, we face new and different challenges. The world has changed a lot, especially when we talk about sort of the digital age and the interconnectedness of, mm-hmm. of societies um, and the ways in which money and capital and economies are structured, the things that worked before, we cannot go back to. It just doesn't work that way. And so the question is really, how do you wrestle with what we have now to try and figure out how to spread opportunity more widely? And by that, you know, the idea is that people want to be captains of their own fate, right? They want to make choices about how they live. And some people want to try and go out and, right, make a ton of money and some people want to do good in their communities even if it means making less and some people want a good job that provides stability for their families and the question is can they 
can they do the things that they need to do mm-hmm. to, to find their level of happiness in society? And as an organization, one of the things that we are very concerned about in opportunity is that it's not just um, that it exists or doesn't exist, but it is about where it exists. And we are very concerned as an organization that opportunity is concentrated in too few places in this country. Mm. That there are some major metropolitan areas where there are a lot of good jobs and people have the opportunity to work and transfer around and right, those labor markets are tight and prices are rising and there's an affordability issue in those cities to be mm-hmm. sure. But then there are other places not so far away, as close as an hour and a half away, where the jobs are going away, that it is very difficult to earn a good living. And it's not that those people want to just get on some kind of government assistance as much as the social safety net is important, but they would choose to earn a good living if there were a good living to be had nearby. And there are a lot of reasons why geographically and financially people are stuck and why the opportunities are not flowing around more evenly in the country. But that is one of the big challenges that we have seen capital migrating to certain areas and away from others. And so it creates a sense of winners and losers in the economy. And how do you create more equality of opportunity? So that's the thing that mm-hmm. we're my mm-hmm. colleagues who work on the economy are very much concerned about. Mm-hmm. right? And technology is a piece of that. But technology, in some cases, has exacerbated inequality. So how do you think about how technology solutions that provide greater opportunities right. and right. more evenly spread opportunities for things? Um, and I think that's a real challenge that we wrestle with. Like, I think... You know, a lot of people want to blame China and the outsourcing of jobs. And, you know, we used to have Toys R Us, and that went away, and it's not necessarily because of China. Or Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster went away. Um, And it wasn't because those jobs went elsewhere. It's just that, right, Right. my dad and I don't go down and check out a VHS tape (laughs) anymore. He just clicks on something on Netflix. And so there's both technological change and the globalization of the marketplace. And how do we cope with all of those things? And more automation is coming, and it's a real Mm -hmm. challenge. Um, I don't think that we've thought about how to do that in ways that benefit wider numbers of Americans. And I think that's the challenge Mm -hmm. for clearly the next president, because this president doesn't seem to be interested in in those kinds of solutions. Yeah, interesting. How do you see opportunity as distinct from freedom? Because when you were talking about opportunity, you were kind of laying out almost, again, to go back to the sci-fi or um, maybe a fantasy uh, genre, like some people want to be wizards, some people want to be mages, some people want to be uh, elves, uh, right. some people want to be warriors. Like, they're the, and, and for them, that's freedom, like right. the, the, the ability to, to play those different roles. But I imagine freedom is something yeah. broader when you guys talk about I it. I mean, is. yeah, and we talk about it. And the freedom piece of it is, is largely for us about the social issues, okay. right? So it's the idea that you couldn't have a state that said we have orc-free bathrooms, for example, right, like, to extend your analogy, um, <laughs> or that, you know, you couldn't have intermarriage between. There are certain things where people are choosing to mm-hmm. – to live their lives in certain ways. And the state is trying to say, you must conform to the way that I, from my cultural and religious background, believe is the right way to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are people who are concerned about the fraying of American society and where's the commonality. Part of that, I think, comes from the bifurcation of media in the sense that it's not like when we were kids and everybody watched Walter Cronkite, but like now people get their news from hundreds of different platforms so it's like there is no sort of common frame of reference um i think the challenge on that though is that the common frame of reference is the anomaly not the rule historically speaking but 
but the baby boom generation and the way they understand the commonality is so much a part of our national psyche. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to understand how we could have been much more tolerant of these things, right? Like the restrictions against ser- homosexual service in the military and the intelligence services actually was not always historically true. It was something that came uh-huh. in during the Cold uh-huh. War as part of a um, norm, very strong norm setting behavior. Um, but but then there, right, so for us, these questions of freedom are about how do people live their lives? How do people make their own choices in mm-hmm. their personal lives free from government interference? And, and that's a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. So get, getting now to this question of finding common ground, I, I have two kind of theories about how this could work. They're both naive and idealistic, but maybe mm-hmm. you can bring me to, to reality a little bit. It seems to me that as a society, we have stopped caring, at least large portions of the society have stopped caring about the truth as uh, as much as uh, they probably should. I, I mean, like now, you mentioned media a moment ago. I mean, now th- there is a smorgasbord of opinions out there. Like, like if, if you want to believe, if, if, if there's an opinion out there that will reassure you of mm-hmm. anything you want, that, that you're pretty, that you're smart, that your culture is the best... You name it, that you're the, the politician you like is the greatest politician. There, there is food out there in the form of opinions to nourish that hunger, and, and, and it, it, it's seemingly infinite. I mean, you, you could spend 24 hours a day finding the, these different sources of food, as it were, to reinforce your opinions. Um, do, do you see, well, A, does your organization do anything, and do you see anything that our wider culture could be doing to help people care about the truth more and 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 get better at and i mean that both on the left and right i mean just you know really care because you know it's uh it seems important but it also seems really hard like everybody can't be an expert in north korea and the economy and the arts and i mean life is short we work you know a ton of but how do we can can we get to a place where we care about truth more i think that we have to i mean i think the outside world will force us to care about truth. You can only construct a universe and a political understanding of the world that diverges from fact for so long before fact starts catching up with you, right? So, like North Korea is calling and uh, they want to take right. you up on that bet and see they're trying to set a record. Yeah, I mean, it. I think that it's very clear that North Korea is not engaging in, or rather, the way that in which the deal has been portrayed to people yeah. is not actually the truth of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you, but you think North Korea, like. As a as a country would eventually its its uh, propaganda and lies would catch up with them because this is my big fear. Reading uh, 1984, uh, that, yeah. that that like it's actually possible, absent an external force, it's actually possible for a totalitarian regime to sustain itself. So I don't know that that's actually true anymore. And actually, yeah. when you look at North Korea, one of the things that makes it very difficult for that regime to continue to sustain its hold on a constructed reality is the this development of technology itself, mm-hmm. right? So there are many people in North Korea who have underground access to South Korean mm-hmm. television shows. And so they see a world beyond that. And there are other countries that broadcast radio in. So I think there are people who begin to recognize... Um, the distinction between the official line and mm-hmm. what's really happening. And the question is, how long does the state monopoly on force mm-hmm. allow it to retain its control, or how does it adjust to that mm-hmm. sort of reality? I think 
the North Koreans know that the food shortages they experience are not normal, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but then the question is, how do you navigate within that system? And I think that it makes it very hard for a totalitarian state to even understand what's going, like to, to try and construct a reality that yeah. and have people live in a propaganda world that, that they they dictate. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the challenges. As much as Trump is sort of wish for, wishing for a North Korean-style propaganda machine, he'll never be able to have that, right? Yeah. Because that's just, it's antithetical to who we are. You, you, think, you think the American spirit or truth itself is so potent that it cannot be uh, subdued for too long. It's like a hydra, and you cut yeah. the head off truth, and no, I mean, a it's new like, head grows back. Right, to cite to one of my favorite movies, Firefly, can't stop the signal, right? Oh, oh like, my God, yeah, Firefly, too, that's Right, awesome. like, you can't, right, there, yeah. there, are, there will always be ways yeah, yeah. to get the message out. The thing that I think is challenging today in our political culture actually is not so much that people aren't, res- well, it is partially that people aren't respecting the truth, mm-hmm. but it's that... People are so certain about their own truth, right? Yeah, you're right. They, they, would, they would say, I'm concerned with the truth, and I right. did my investigation, and wow. Like, right, and right, vaccines, so good. Right. And yeah. vaccines are mind control, or whatever right. it is that people right. come up with you know, after doing right. that. And the thing that I try and hold on to in all of that, which I think is important, is how do I know what I know? Mm-hmm. Is, in fact, what I know the truth? How do I verify that? What are my sources? How do I take into consideration what someone else has said and what mm-hmm. is their their understanding, what is their factual basis for that truth? Where does it all come from? Um, and even in the scientific method, right, like a number of things that we believed, right, especially if you look at the dietary stuff, right, like fat mm-hmm. is good, fat is bad, like who knows, right? right. It, it is very hard to find a place to land in terms of what is the truth. Um, I'm on the board of this organization, Internews, and, you know, they the head, um, head of it has this term of... Um, information dystopia right like there's just so in some places there's so much of it in some places there's not enough of it um but in either case people are really suffering right Mm -hmm. um and i think it's really hard for people to understand what is truth and so in that sense developing some rational thinking some Mm -hmm. ability to judge some ability to test one's own assumptions is really important and to recognize that we don't all have the complete truth right right and most of the time we don't have the complete truth i would say i would say you know we're kind of fundamentalist it's just that how much of a fundamentalist do you want to be right and this is why right people talk about the american experiment and as a government we are literally an experiment right Mm -hmm. you put a proposal out there you have a factual basis to make your hypothesis that it's going to work you put it gets enacted you try it and you see how society reacts yeah. and it either does or doesn't make a difference right so bill clinton and welfare reform he wanted to put in work requirements he had some basis for doing that he put that in and then we see how it changes the system um all kinds of things right medicare expansion of health insurance you do something you see how it reacts and then you adjust to it and you have to have a feedback loop based on fact and result Mm -hmm. of accountability and understanding how the government is doing things that allows you to adjust from then on out it's not like you win a battle and it's over and you know kick up your feet and and now we're in utopia this is a constantly evolving effort that we are we are trying to make America more perfect. And 
that requires a certain amount of transparency on behalf of the government to be able to say this is, in fact, what the results have been. Mm. Right? This is what the economy is doing as a result of tariffs or this is what economy is doing as a result of tax cuts and being honest about that. Yeah. Because if you're wrong, it doesn't do anyone any good to n- not be truthful because mm. the beauty of America and the length of the experiment in which it's gone on is that we adjust. And yeah. there are winners and losers, and there are people who are right, and there are people who are wrong. And you can change your mind due to change circumstances. Um, but you have to be honest with the American people who are holding their government mm-hmm. accountable about that. And that's yeah. the piece of it that I think is most troubling, and the trend towards a lack of transparency on behalf of leaders starting after 9-11 and made much worse in this administration. But both Republicans and Democrats have not been particularly good about being forthcoming about what they were doing. Right. And how the American people should judge their actions. Yeah. So, the, yeah, th- this actually leads perfectly to the second half of what I was going to hypothesize as a naive and idealistic solution. The first, obviously, get people to care about truth more. But uh, I, I don't see as much in, in politics anymore, um, you know, this uh, Kennedy-esque idea of doing for your country, right? I mean, it, 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 it's great to focus on opportunity, freedom, and security, but what about your uh, obligation to, your duty to, or at least your concern for your fellow citizen and citizen of the world? And I, I, I think a lot of this, uh, we, we've kind of eroded that. We, we, we've kind of made this assumption that if you belong to a democratic society, your job is just to pick the best you know the best arrangement for yourself like right. who who who's going to give you a job who's going to give you an education uh even if the idea is you have to earn it but it, but it's all about your path you know it's, right. it's it's democracy for you or find your best democracy something like that and and one of the side effects of that is i think it has eroded uh trust in people i mean so so it's not it's not just that we have uh to worry about truth that there will be plenty of times when we will never, you know, I'll never be able to peer review a, a journal, uh, an article on global warming. But I still, I trust that the people who are telling me about global warming are doing that in a way that at least has my best interest at heart, or at least has reality's best interest at heart. And I think a lot of the, like that trust, um, a lot of trust in government has gone away. Just this idea that people, you could actually get into politics because you really want to care. You care about people, not because of some craven desire to get richer or or, uh, you know, control the world or whatever. So uh, yeah, what, I what do you think, think about that? So I think that there's a real tension, right, in this country between sort of freedom and community. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that we have a real distrust in this country of the communitarian impulse, at least at this moment in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes because we don't have enough connection to government to feel like it is actually operating in our best interest as a community mm-hmm. and right operating it's even conceivable like I, I don't even right. think people understand that it's actually possible for a person to enjoy uh, helping other people yeah i think it's really hard because right the the idea of a community impulse means that some people do or do less or get less to help those who have less, right? Depending on how you define less. Yeah, less money, but maybe they get more emotional satisfaction. And so we haven't talked about that, right? Like, I I do think that there's a real obligation as a country. It's not just about voting, but, like, we have an obligation to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. That's a a place where there are certain things that only the government can do on behalf of all of us. And so we have to to do that. Some things are better done at that 
at that scale. And so it's actually really helpful. Um, but, you know, there are, there are organizations like unions, which I think are really important to the fabric of society, where, right, like you look at a Screen Actors Guild or the players, um, players unions for sports, and what happens there is that people are willing to sacrifice the power of some of their all-stars to make sure that there are league minimums, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you think about what is the power of all of us to make sure that there's a certain um, minimum standard of mm-hmm. of um, of prosperity in life in this country? And I think that that's actually really hard. And the question then becomes who pays for that? Um, but I do think it's very hard to build those communities now. And technology is in part made that yeah. harder because it's like you can create community with people who are hundreds or thousands of miles away from you but not invest in the place where you live right. and so we're sort of wandering around right. in our and own you might little move, silos yeah, yeah every couple of years yeah um, but i do think that there's not mm-hmm. a responsibility and obligation and government should encourage that of us building community in the places where we live because government is organized geographically Mm -hmm. around that. And so I think we do have an obligation to know what our elected officials are about and care about our communities. And if, if we think that something in our community could be better or isn't going well to get involved in in Mm -hmm. civic life and say so, and engage your fellow citizens about that and not just sort of harumph off and say (laughs) that like, well, because you believe that I can't possibly talk to you. I think there's a certain amount of approaching the opposition and the people you disagree with, with humanity to understand what's underneath that. And I also think there's a real sense of in this country right now, everyone is resentful of everyone else that everyone's sort of walking around with a sense of being aggrieved and that they are looked down on by someone. And like, that's all in our own heads, right? Like, yeah. yeah, I just think, like, yeah, there are reasons that other people are going to judge me or mm-hmm. I'm going to judge other people. But they're actually kind of irrelevant. And as long as they're not sort of taking steps to affirmatively disadvantage someone, we should be able to have conversations right. about sort of what's the best way to go forward. Um, and I try really hard. You know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, I try really hard to try not to denigrate or make ad hominem attacks about against people that I disagree with and just try and argue with the policies or the mm-hmm. facts that they've put forward and not say you're dumb or you're deceived or you're evil. Um, I don't think that that helps the debate. Right. I mean, there are people who are evil, but I don't know that it helps to just make that assumption mm-hmm. from the get-go that because someone disagrees mm-hmm. that they are automatically in that camp. Mm-hmm. Um that said, I do think that the right the people who decided that inflicting cruelty on children for separating them from their parents at the border, I really, I really question how their value set led them to think that the punishment of the parents was worth inflicting the, chi- the cruelty on the children. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, last. So, thank you so much. I feel like we have three more hours of things to talk about, not least of which is Firefly uh, what, that's, uh, and Serenity, the, the movie as well. Uh, so I, I hope we can continue the conversation at, at some point. But I, w- I want to end by uh, letting you ask a question. If you could speak to uh, the, the wisest person in the world or the wisest person in history, what would be a question about leadership, maybe about your own leadership, that you would want, uh, you would want an answer to or at least... Uh, the beginnings of an answer to. Yeah, I think that the thing that I sort of struggle with the most, 
or would want someone to help me understand is how does one deal with one's own ego Mm -hmm. in the context of leadership? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's very easy both to denigrate oneself for those of us who are women, I think you're sort of always second guessing, but even, but other leaders sort of overinflate one's own self perceptions. And how do you get an accurate reading on, on how you're doing as a leader? Yeah. I think that that's the hardest thing. Um, and how do you take on board legitimate criticism and separate it from things that don't matter? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's sort of the hardest question as a leader. And and I actually, but I worry most about leaders who don't even ask themselves that question. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, thank you again so much, Mika. This has been uh, absolutely wonderful. And I, and I love when an interview, uh, I, I finish an interview feeling like I have a hundred other questions uh, to ask you. And as I say, I hope we can keep the, the conversation going over the years. And I hope our listeners will uh, take seriously this question that you're posing here about uh, how does a leader uh, know herself or know himself because uh, you, you're absolutely right Be, being in the, that that's hard enough for anyone but being in the leadership role I think makes it e- even harder so again thank you so much well thanks